0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Paul Kangor, professor of political science, Grove City College, and executive director for the college's Institute for Faith and Freedom. Dr. Kangor, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, sure, Dan. Anytime. Good to be back.
0: We didn't really go over too much what we were going to talk about, just in very brief terms, but to get us started, um, I'm seeing a lot of activity um, among millennials and also college professors um, and some politicians that that seem to be pushing very strongly now for socialism. And to me, that's alarming because, uh, well, maybe because of my background and and so, I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about that. What are you observing to begin with? Are you seeing the same thing and and what are your concerns
1: well you 're right to be alarmed Dan and especially as an American because the United States of America is not a socialist country, and it was not founded on the principles of socialism or of marxism or or of anything anything like that. In fact, it was founded on principles that are totally antithetical to socialist principles. And the, uh, you know, the, very, the very vision and, and mission of America is what brought us to be the world's bastion of, of, of free market capitalism, or just free markets, right? So the idea that you would have a situation in America today where the very latest polling number by Gallup has, this one was done last summer, I believe, they've been asking it every year. 18 to 29-year-olds in America, 51% prefer socialism and 45% prefer capitalism. There was a a poll that was done, I think now it was 2014 or 2015, where I think it was 69% of millennials said that they would be willing to vote for a socialist as president of the United States. And a lot of people probably thought, ah, well, I don't know, would they really do that? Well, in 2016, a lifetime socialist named Bernie Sanders ran in the Democratic primary and received 13 million votes. Yeah. And to give people an idea of how many votes that is, Donald Trump got a record number of votes in the Republican primary. He got 14 million. So Bernie, who came in second to Hillary Clinton, and you know Hillary Clinton was a student of Saul Alinsky, speaking of socialism, Hillary, I think, got about 17 million, but Bernie got 13 million. So, a lot of those millennials who said they'd vote for a socialist for president, well, they did. They did just that. And in the last election, the midterm, 2018, a number of literal, bona fide, you know, literal members of the, the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, it, 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 it prides itself as the self-proclaimed largest socialist organization in the United States. A number of them ran on the Democratic Party ticket for Congress, and a number of them got elected, including the current star of the Democratic Party, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was only 28 years old when they elected her. Um, This woman, Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian Muslim woman elected to Congress, and she's the one who recently said, Dan, you know, uh, in regard to Donald Trump, I can't even repeat it in your, in, 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 on your show because of the language she used. But she said, we're going to impeach the,' um, And then she used, uh, you know, think of the worst curse word that you can come up with. That's the one that she used. Yeah, she, She's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. So they, uh, the, the millennials are not only saying that they're going to vote for him. They are voting for him. And a lot of Americans of all ages, I mean, you, you don't get elected just strictly by winning millennials, you got to win by getting people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and on up to vote for you as well. So it's a very, it's a very disturbing trend in America right now, and you're right to be alarmed.
0: Yeah, well, it's, um, it, it's an uncomfortable feeling. Um, now, let's talk about socialism just a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you have any stories or not to tell us, um, something that would illustrate what socialism is.
1: Well, I guess you could take a picture of any number of countries, and you don't even have to go as far left as you know Czechoslovakia or East Germany or the USSR during the Cold War, They'll look at countries today, or even a communist country today, like a Cuba or a North Korea, even though they both refer to themselves as socialists more than they do communists. But you could even look at countries like Venezuela, Zimbabwe, and you could see the sort of rot that's going on there. And and I mean, part of the problem with defining socialism is a lot of people come up with their own definitions of it, but in, in strict Marxist theory socialism is, is a way station, a, a transitionary stop on the way to full-blown communism. So Marx and Engels said that history would pass through a series of stages, each kind of rising to a higher level on this dialectical plane. And the it would, history would go through feudalism, and then to capitalism, and then to socialism, and then eventually to full-blown communism. And if, and if there's one common, if there's one commonality between socialism and communism, it's that both call for what they call the co- uh, common ownership of the means of production, which is which is that the state would own and manage industries and services. And you know, to, to be totally frank and honest and fair and as objective in describing this as I can, if you had a 100 socialists in a room, and they, they'd probably all vary on the degree to which services and how many services and to what degree they'd like to take them all over. But typically, in most socialist countries, the, the government there there is you know, collective government ownership of the means of production. Where um, you know, take a I guess a softer socialist example like the Attlee government in Britain after World War II, where the the government in Britain ended up taking over. Rail uh, railway services, car companies, um, healthcare, which to this day they still have the national health service, communications, coal, steel. It, it ended up being at least a fifth of the economy. So that would. Um, so I, I guess I guess those are some examples.
0: Yeah. It. Um a phrase comes to my mind as I heard you speaking here. It's almost like there's a the socialist temptation, where people want uh, their hands held, they want the government arms to be put around them to protect them, to keep them, to provide for them, to be fatherly and motherly towards them. Um, that that's I, I wonder. I don't know for sure, but I wonder if those are some of the emotions that are going through these folks' minds.
1: Oh, yeah, no no question about it. I, I mean I call it womb to tomb, nanny state uh, you know, government and you know big sis may, rather than big brother, right? They they, they they see the government as the protector and, and, and what you find in a lot of these surveys, Dan, there was there's one by the Reason Foundation and group, and they they work together They do it every year too. They do this survey every year. They've seen the same numbers as Gallup with, with about, you know, a slight, slightly larger number of millennials saying they prefer socialism over capitalism, although the numbers continue to go up every year. And in one of these surveys, they, they took a deeper dive and they asked the young people that they were polling, they said, okay, well, how do you define socialism? And, and they said things like people loving one another, people sharing people caring for, for each other, right? And and if you talk to a lot of them in surveys, they, they seem to equate it as free stuff, free education, free health care, without ever even any understanding of the fact that it's, well, it's really not free. Somebody else has to pay for it. You know, there's, there's not a, a field of money trees in Capitol Hill or outside of, uh, you know, former President Obama's, uh, you know, White House bedroom window where he, where, he, where he grabs $100 bills every day <laughs> and uses that to pay for everything, right? There's not a, a kind of a magic fairy who, who, who runs around creating money. I mean, that money has to be taxed. It has to be taken from others. And, and, and there's only so much of that you can do until you strangle the economy, kill prosperity, you know, kill the goose that laid the golden egg, or as Margaret Thatcher put it, before, you know, the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money. And, and, and you know, that that's eventually, you run up against the, the hard fact of reality.
0: Yeah. Um, someone may say, well, why are you guys so concerned about this? Uh, you're, this is a Christian radio program. Why would you, you care about these things? But uh, God cares about them. Um, way back yeah. when, <laughs> in the book of Exodus, when the Ten Commandments were given, uh, not only does he command us to have no other gods before him, not make idols, not take his name in vain, to honor our father and mother, not to murder, not to commit adultery, he also commands us to not steal, and also right. to not covet and and these are these are Cast in stone, <laughs> pardon the pun, yeah. uh, commandments of God. And so um, when we're covetous in our hearts, we want something that someone else has. It wasn't that long ago, I can recall, someone was running for office and they said, we want to uh, basically redistribute the wealth and give it to others. And that's like the worst thing you can do, it seems, to, to a people economically.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's exactly right, and and they they really thrive on covetousness, on on envy, and, and, and which is absolutely not a theological virtue, right? But but they they thrive on class warfare and division, and sowing in people and an enmity, a hatred that the person who has more than you is because you know, they've taken it, right? They they don't deserve it, or at the very least, if they earned it. Well, then they need to be um, forced to share it, and it, it, what what the scriptures really call for is is voluntary charity it, what what Jesus wants is is the benevolence of somebody through their own their own heart being charitable and 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 sharing and sharing of their wealth and helping other people and and you know to be honest, I think as christians we need we need to do a better job about that, but Jesus doesn't call for you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Look what happens. You know the Good Samaritan helps the the wounded traveler on the road to Jericho, and he helps him up. He doesn't he doesn't yell for the authorities. He says, hey 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 hey, where's the government? Where's the <laughs> government to take care of this guy? Hey come on everybody everybody chip in. I want each of you right now. I'm going to get a policeman and force each of you to give me ten dollars to give to this guy. See you later. I'm on my way out of here. He takes care of him himself. He puts him on his horse, his donkey, whatever it is. He, he takes him to the inn. He says to the to the innkeeper, "This person, I'm going to take care of him. Here's the money, and to make sure that you're honest about it, I'm going to come back in a couple days and I'm going to check on him. I'm going to follow up. and now, now that that's real charity, and yeah, that's the kind of thing that would warm Jesus's heart to to see that. It's no act of benevolence if you just if if you go to Washington and, and demand that." Some other, uh, you know, some some stinking lousy, uh, you know, no good for nothing, evil, nefarious corporate business owner, right? That 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 you you force him by gunpoint to, to give of his wealth. I mean, what what's what's so impressive about that? That's no great moral act of free will t- <laughs> taking place there. But but that but that's what the socialists thrive on, and the communists in particular. And like you said too, what would talking about this on a Christian show, there were no greater atheists in all of history than the communists. They were vicious toward religion and, and 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 it's also true of many, if not most, of the socialists as well.
0: Yeah, now um another area where there's um a contrast here is dealing with land and ownership and boundaries. And um, I know my wife and I own a piece of land uh, here in upstate New York, and it's not that large, but there's a distinct boundary. And so um, we protect the land, and we certainly pay taxes on the land, yeah. Yeah. but um, our our country also has boundaries, and it defines what we're responsible for and what we protect and that sort of thing. Uh, it seems today that there's this increased tendency to say, well, borders don't matter. H- have you observed that?
1: Yeah, and, and let me add, too, on on the land point, you're really not even completely free to own your own land. Because because by becoming a landowner, the government then forces you to pay property taxes. Right. And those property taxes are usually the primary means state to state. Of funding the government schools, of funding public schools, and and, and w- which really has to make you wonder if the government can come in and force me to pay ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars a year in property taxes on my house and my land. Well, what gives them the right to do it when I bought this land?
0: Oh, it's so it, true. It's, it's
1: almost yeah. It, it's it's as if it's being said that it's actually the government's land, right? It's not really your land; it's the government's land. You bought it. You bought it from a private owner, uh, but the government can come in and forcibly take tax money from you for it. So, in a sense, it's really the government's domain, right? Oh yeah, and, and yeah, and and that just that just doesn't make sense at, at all. And then you have you have somebody like me. I pay property taxes where where I live in Grove City, Pennsylvania. I have eight kids, and we homeschool all of them. We don't even use the public schools. So 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 all of our money goes to pay for the public schools and then people want to tell us uh that that we're selfish, that the you know we're not supporting the public schools by not putting our, our children in. Actually, you're gonna be really happy because I've just given you a whole bunch of money for the public schools and deducted my eight kids from even being in there, which gives you even more money to spend on the rest of the public schools. <laughs> <laughs> but but that but that's that's the, how the mind of of the socialist works, and, and 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 with the socialist, the collectivist, you can never give them enough. You can never give them enough of, mm. of your money. Yes. They always want more and more. And then when you feel that you've been taxed too much and haven't and have done enough, then they tell you that you're greedy.
0: Yes. Yes. Is there any cases in history, and today we're talking with Dr. Paul Kangor, a professor of political science at Grove City College. Dr. Kangor, are there any examples in history where communism has done very good for the people, where it's really blessed them and made them thrive and prosper and that sort of thing?
1: There's none. And that, and that's the most extraordinary thing about it. I mean, you you would think that advocates of communism would have at least a dozen cases that they could point to, right? Or a success rate of, gee, at least 50%, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you think with the way they love it that they'd have a success rate of 80 to 90%. Not only could they not give you 50%, which would be an F, by the way, as a professor, right? 50% is an F, uh, if they can't even give you 25 percent. They can't even give you 10 percent. They can't even give you 1 there, percent. There's not a communist country in all of history that has been prosperous. And a country like China has succeeded only in the degree that it has since the, the revolution under Deng Xiaoping in 1978-79, where he promised to never take them again back to the days of Maoist collectivism. And and to the point where China is basically politically communist, not really economically communist. So even even communist countries have figured this out. And look at, the, look at you know the late great USSR. As soon as it dissolved, Russia and you know the fifteen republics that were in the Soviet Union, you know, all of them took the road to a free market rather than rather than totalitarian communism and socialism.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, um, I continue to be very concerned over, uh, particularly the millennials and um, their almost mindless embracing of socialism. I'm not sure they really understand what they're embracing.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It is mindless, and it, it's. It's. I'd say it's based on a couple things, Dan. One would be a general. Cluelessness and genuine ignorance over the over their lack of experience. Right, they're not property owners. Uh, you know, they they haven't owned a house. They're 18 years old. They're not probably not even paying taxes yet. They you know, they're just getting into college. And the other part would be just that college. They're going into our universities, which are run by people who are progressives, leftists, socialists. Some of them Marxists as some of them cultural Marxists, and who at the very least are not laissez-faire free market conservatives. And, and so it's really in these, these university indoctrination mills that, that they're learning to support socialism, just as they learn there to support redefining their gender, their sexuality, marriage, and a whole related assortment of other secular progressive things that are contrary and antithetical to a to a christian natural biblical worldview
0: yeah and uh i've also noticed a tendency um for that segment of the population to openly welcome um islam to come into the nation and you know they they would accuse people of being islamophobic and that sort of thing but um if uh, I hope I'm not going too far here, but if a person is consistent with his or her belief with the Quran, then um, um, I don't think the progressives would be very comfortable with what they would want to bring into a society.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And, and take any Islamic country, any Islamic theocracy, any Islamic regime, the, the Iranians, the Taliban in Afghanistan— I mean, really, truly, the most sexist regime in, uh, surely, the, the, not just recent history, maybe in all of history, would have been the Taliban in, in Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and, and also, for, for that matter, to hear to use the language of the left, find me a regime more homophobic, right? They love that word, homophobic, than, than the Taliban, which threw homosexuals off of buildings. Stoned them in, in uh, amphitheaters, soccer stadiums, and actually had a policy of, of literally pushing walls on top of, on top of homosexuals. I, mm. I share a, an article from the New York Times with my students around uh, 1996 describing the Taliban in Afghanistan and what, you know, how, they, how they rounded up homosexuals. So it, you know, Islam, or at least traditional Islam, or I, I call it radical Islam if you want, I guess, but, but it's just, no, it's just Islam Islam historically hasn't exactly been tolerant of homosexuality or of, or of the modern-day liberal left understanding or interpretation of quote-unquote women's rights. Yeah. But the fact right now that they would, would be embracing Islam and certain Islamic candidates they're strictly doing that as an anti-Donald Trump thing. Mm-hmm. That's 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 all that's going on. Yeah. It really has nothing to do that's consistent with their ideology. I mean, if, if if they went to an Islamic country, the the first thing put up against the wall would be their LGBTQ values.
0: Yeah, it's true. Now, um, uh, the Lord would have us have freedom and liberty. He wants us to be uh, free from sin, but he wants us to be slaves of righteousness, that is, doing good according to God's law, uh, living within the grace uh, that our Lord Jesus gives us. Uh, In a couple minutes remaining, um, are there any books that maybe a Christian student could read to better understand the pitfalls? of socialism and then see the contrast to a more biblical way of uh, civil government?
1: Well, interesting. Yeah, I I could, um, I could probably name a a number of books. Um, Would it, would it be uh, too (laughs) self-serving if I mentioned uh, my politically incorrect guide to communism? I was kind of hoping
0: you would, I was hoping maybe you'd mention one of your books.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, but uh, I, I, wrote, I wrote that. It was published in 2017, and that lays out all of these things, including what, what, what progressives are now touting as 21st century socialism, which is a word that they excitedly use to describe what Hugo Chavez is doing in Venezuela. <laughs> and, 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 and also, I, I go through cultural Marxism in there as well. And I, I guess while I'm at it, another book that I wrote is called Takedown, and and that goes through the the two century long assault by the socialist, communist, progressive left to redefine marriage, sexuality, and family. That's that's been going on it's been going on for two hundred years. Hmm. Back to various colonies in the United States. By the colonies I don't mean the original thirteen. I mean things like the Oneida colony and in, in, in New York, but you know, maybe even up, that might even up in your area, right? Um, the um, New Harmony Colony in Indiana in the 1820s. And then outside of America, the Communist Manifesto 1848, Marx and Engels wrote about the abolition of the family. They actually used the word abolition of family, exclamation mark. Marx said, even the most radical flare up, this infamous proposal of the communists. So, so they've been on this crusade, this long march, to redefine these things for centuries, and only now, here into the 21st century, in the last couple decades, I would say, with the with the fruits, the the rancid fruits of our universities, have they convinced the the wider American public to hop on the bandwagon, hop on the train, and and redefine human nature?
0: Mm. Oh my. Well, that's very helpful. And um, today we have been talking with Dr. Paul Kangor. He is professor, political science, Grove City College, and also executive director for the college's Institute for Faith and Freedom. And Dr. Kangor, if someone wants to look you up online, certainly the web address is gcc.edu. But what if they want to read some of your recent writings?
1: Well, you could, you could search... The American Spectator So Google uh, my name With The American Spectator And, and my books uh Incorrect Guide to Communism Dupes, Takedown, The Communists The uh, Pope and a President Others Those are, those are posted at, at Amazon Amazon.com
0: Oh, it's wonderful Well, uh, thank you very much For fitting us in today Dr. Kangor And the Lord bless you, my friend And I look forward to our next time together
1: well, thanks, Dan. Anytime, and God bless you and, and your
0: listeners. And, dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.